Morning. My name is Mike, one of the pastors here at Chantilly Bible Church. Excited you're here. Um, so I had, haven't always had glasses. Uh, I wasn't born with them. Nobody is. Um, but uh, it wasn't until a few years ago where I finally had to concede in humility that it was time. So uh, I'm sitting here because you guys remember if you have glasses or if you've seen it before, the way that you get your prescriptions for glasses, right? They sit you down. They put the uh, eye chart on the wall up there with the big letters and then the smaller letters that get increasingly blurry with people like me. And then if you remember, they pull that big machine over your eyes, right? And at the big machine, there's these two little lenses. And by the way, whoever's putting uh, the video up online, could this be the thumbnail uh, that you do of me just sitting here like this when people click on the sermon? Um, no, but they put this lens. And, and at first, there's nothing. So you're just seeing the, the chart like you normally do. And then what they do is they start dialing lenses in in front of you. And they say, hey, we're going to do one and then two. And then, Mike, you tell me or you, which one looks better. So they, they go, hey, here's one. Look at the chart. Okay, here's two. Look at the chart. Which one was better? And so you're like, two. You're like, okay, let's do another one. One, two. Okay, one. Okay. And they do that for a few more minutes. Then after a while, they're dialing some stuff. You've done all this. They say, okay, I'm going to remove them all. And they remove them all. So you're just looking. Like, this is what your eyes see now. And they go, how about this? And all of a sudden, that chart just crystallizes. It gets clear. I mean, every outline, you could see every, every letter. I think I could see into the next room. I mean, it was like that clear. No, but it was just so super crystal clear because I was given these new lenses. New lenses, not just simply to see things more clearly, but to be honest, it's actually to see the world more accurately. With the lenses that I have now, I'm actually seeing the world as it is. And that's a lot like what Jesus is doing with his message, the Sermon on the Mount, which we've titled Reorder. Jesus is coming alongside and, and giving us new spiritual lenses with which to see the world, not just more clearly, but more accurately. Because we live our lives thinking that the world operates one way, that power and meaning, purpose, that joy and hope are found in ourselves or in the things of this world, the kingdoms of this world. And then Jesus steps in and with the Sermon on the Mount, flips in front of our eyes, uh, in our, the eyes of our heart, a new set of lenses to see the world, that what we thought was true and clear and right was upside down all along. And it's the message that Jesus would proclaim throughout his ministry, that in fact, strength is not found in self-assertion, but surrender. Power is not shown in dominance, but in serving. Glory is not given to the prideful, but poured out to the humble. That the greatest treasures the world offers us are but temporary trinkets compared to the eternal, glorious rewards of heaven. And to truly find your life, you must first lose it. New lenses that show us a new kingdom and a new way of living. And to start off this message, Jesus tells us there's something else new that we need, something that the kingdoms of this world have entirely wrong, and it's what it means to be blessed. So he opens his sermon in the most incredible way. If you want to go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5, he subverts everything, our hearts and minds, and the world tells us it means to be blessed. And, and by the end, his hearers then 
And us today will have two choices to scoff, ignore, deny Jesus and his words as the ravings of a lunatic and just go about our lives as usual. Or to say, he sees something I don't. He knows something I don't. And he's offering me and offering us the truth that we can't find anywhere else. And he calls us to reorder our lives around it. And so last week, Pastor Milt opened to us Jesus' truth about blessing and what we call the Beatitudes. And he reminded us that just like Jesus' first century audience, our world today longs to be blessed. The word blessed is not simply just some superficial emotion of fleeting happiness. No, when Jesus and scripture speak of the favor of blessing, it is a soul-satisfying delight that permeates to the deepest and furthest depths of who we are. Isn't that something you want? A soul-satisfying happiness. It's what we all want. In fact, I would argue it's what we were made for. We were designed to be blessed. And that's why hashtag blessed is everywhere. It's saturating social media, but it's tied to pictures of attractive bodies or exotic experiences, the intoxication of power and influence, the boasts and status and achievements, and the latest treasures and toys that money can buy. But why the world and us are so desperate to be blessed, we have no idea where to truly find it. I mean, all those things that we see, is that, is that really what we see online? Is that really what we're being sold where we'll find that soul-satisfying blessedness, that unshakable joy we long for? Is blessedness really found where we're looking for it? So Jesus lovingly here tells us, not even close. And so the new lenses come down, and everything is flipped upside down, and Jesus proclaims upside down things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who know their own spiritual poverty, because they are actually closer to God than the self-assured who don't think that they need him. Blessed are those who mourn, who are broken over their sin, because the experience of the comfort of grace doesn't come until we're humbled to admit we need it. Blessed are the meek who don't lust for power to lower it over people, but in their influence, lift up people. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because that righteousness they crave is theirs in satisfying abundance in him. And so Jesus continues as he proceeds in reordering our lives and redefining blessedness for us when he continues in his beatitude message that we pick up today in chapter 5, verse 7, where he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So like all of these beatitude phrases, like we won't really understand what Jesus is talking about if we don't understand what he means by the words that he uses. 
So for this uh, beatitude, as you can imagine, understanding mercy is really important. So what is mercy? Well, to understand that, it might be helpful to note that in Scripture, we often see mercy bundled together with other words and concepts. The Apostle Paul loved to talk about grace and mercy together, and sometimes he would even throw peace in there. Uh, often we see mercy in Scripture. It's connected with themes of like love and compassion and forgiveness. So mercy and grace and peace and love and compassion and forgiveness are kind of like the McCullough children in that you rarely find one of them without the others around somewhere. And like the McCullough children, while they're very similar, they are uniquely different. So it might help us to understand the difference and uniqueness of mercy by comparing it to the similar idea of grace. So you might have heard this before. Grace is when we get something we don't deserve, and mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve. Now, that can be confusing. Let me explain it. So grace means we get something we don't deserve, and that means in a positive way, like an undeserved reward or blessing. We haven't earned it. And mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve in a negative way, like not getting the due punishment we've earned. So an illustration. So on Friday night, uh, there was a knock on my door, and I go down there, I open it up, and Mark Fisher is standing there. And in his hand, he has a half dozen apple cider donuts. And he hands them to me. Now, I didn't earn those donuts. I wasn't worthy of those donuts but I absolutely received those donuts. Grace is undeserved donuts. Now, let's say, instead of Mark coming to my house on Friday, I went to Mark's house, and I broke in, and I stole his donuts and took them for myself. And Mark, in my guilt, looks at me and says, Mike, I forgive you. I'm not going to hold you accountable. We will not be pressing charges. In that moment, Mark's forgiveness not giving me the punishment I deserve, would be mercy. So what's the moral of that story? If you want to be a positive example in one of my sermons, bring me donuts. That's the point. Let me give you maybe a better example. How many of you are familiar with the story of Les Mis? Okay. If you're not familiar with Les Mis, uh, the story opens uh, with this man, uh, his character, one of the main characters named Jean Valjean. And he's been in prison for almost 20 years. And upon his release, he finds it impossible to find shelter because no one wants to put up an ex-con. So finally, he shows up at the door of a bishop. And this kind man takes him in, gives him a place to stay, only to be rewarded for his kindness by Jean Valjean stealing his costly silverware. But when the police catch Jean Valjean with the stolen treasures and bring him before the bishop, something incredible happens. In that moment, a guilty Jean Valjean stands before the bishop. But with a heart of mercy, the bishop looks at the guilty Jean Valjean and says, no, 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 officer, there's been a mistake. I gave those to him as a gift. In fact, here, you forgot the candlesticks. Mercy. The bishop did not give Jean Valjean what he deserved. 
Instead of giving him what he deserved, he gave him a blessing. He gave him grace. And it wrecked Jean Valjean so much so that it kind of set his life on this new transformed direction. But don't we love that? Don't we sit back and marvel in the beauty of mercy? Then why is it so rare to find mercy in the world today? Because I think inside of us, there, there might be a struggle between the beauty of mercy and the longing for justice. Because justice in its purest form is not wrong or bad. God's justice against evil is good. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do when someone hurts us or sinned against us is an act of punishment, a discipline or a boundary. So sometimes seeing justice served can actually be the best right thing. But I don't think Jesus here in this, uh, this beatitude is saying that justice is wrong or should be avoided. I think Jesus is continuing. This message of blessedness that he's been talking about all along, all the way back to the beginning, he is saying that a person who knows their spiritual poverty and bankruptcy before God, who mourns over the reality of their sin and their deserved condemnation, who in meekness submits themselves to God and in joy receives the righteousness they hunger for only by the grace of forgiveness, and mercy of God, that person will be marked by a blessed life driven to pour out to others the very mercy that they have received from God. Just like the bishop in that story. Because justice is good, but mercy is transformational. None of us in here had our lives forever changed simply by the holy justice of God, but by the unimaginable mercy of God. Mercy transforms. And mercy is our story. It's the same story of all believers for all time. In fact, that's what the Apostle Paul reminded us of when he wrote these words. He said, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Jesus tells us, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And it's kind of like we live in this perpetual mercy machine. Those of us, spiritual beggars, made rich by God's mercy in Jesus, are channels by which God's mercy flows to us and through us. To others. And in doing so, we continue to revel in and enjoy the never-ending blessedness of being in the flowing mercy of God. So another way to say it is this, the mercy of God to us, that then is the mercy of God through us. 
So when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, I believe Jesus is saying that those who truly extend mercy to others are those who have received and will forever live in the flowing mercy of God. They are the blessed who are a blessing in pouring out God's transformational mercy to a world that needs it. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Then Jesus continues. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So he continues unpacking and reordering of us and our understanding of blessing by saying, blessed are the pure in heart. So again, we ask, what, what does pure in heart mean? Well, it's, it's not actually super complicated to understand it. Now, to be it, that's different. Pure is pure, so clean, undefiled, sincere, without defect. Specifically, a moral purity, a genuine holiness. And heart is not what we normally think of, simply kind of where our emotions come from. It's like when you and I read heart in Scripture, it's most often speaking of something much, much deeper than that. The heart is the seat of who we are. Yes, our emotions, but our psyche, our identity, the very core essence of who we are. So the pure in heart is saying, blessed are those who de whose deepest, most selves are sincerely, morally clean. Pure in heart. So what does that look like? Well, again, Jesus kind of tells us a little later in the Sermon on the Mount uh, what it actually doesn't look like when he exposes the hypocrisy of the Pharisees compared to the sincerity of the pure in heart. So look on the screen or look at Matthew 6, 1, where Jesus says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus tells in chapter 6 the true story of how the Pharisees operate. They were the religious hypocrites, outwardly doing these grand gestures, gestures of fake holiness and false piety. But inwardly, their motivations were self-glorifying and arrogant. When they gave, they made a big spectacle of it so that everyone saw how much they offered. When they prayed, it was loud and in public and was not about seeking God, but seeking attention and glory for themselves. When they fasted, they put on these dramatic, gloomy acts before the crowds to, de to demonstrate how much they suffered, or at least how much more they suffered than those less holy heathens. A hypocritical, insincere heart, driven by self-exaltation. So by contrast, though, Jesus told his hearers, when you give, do it secretly, not performing for the crowds and arrogance, but worshiping before the Lord alone in humility. When you pray, don't promote your holiness in public, but go alone in your room before only God and his eyes. And when you fast, don't showcase it, but rather hide it. 
knowing that it is meant for God's glory and not yours. So blessed are the pure in heart. Is Jesus telling us that God is way more concerned with who we are on the inside than who we pretend to be on the outside? That character matters. That exterior religious behavior can't cover up an impure heart before God. It's the same message found throughout Scripture. Like if you remember when God spoke to the prophet Samuel, when Samuel was charged with finding Israel's next king and he didn't know who to look for, God told Samuel this, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So we ask ourselves, how do I know if I am pure in heart? Well, let me help you. You're not. None of us are. Because again, when we take all the Beatitudes together, it is the poor in spirit who, like the prophet Jeremiah said, they recognize their own sinful hearts as deceitful and desperately sick. The pure in heart are those who know that they're not, but rely on the mercy of God for a new heart, a redeemed heart, a forgiven heart, a pure heart that comes only by grace through faith in Jesus. But that new heart that Jesus gives, what does that look like? Well, I think Jesus is telling us. It looks like someone who's the same before the crowds as they are behind the door. It's like someone whose life on Sunday morning and Monday morning and Tuesday morning and Wednesday morning are driven not for self-glory from the applause of others, but for God's glory through a life of humble obedience. It's a heart who's more concerned with their inward personal holiness than their impression and reputation with others. It's someone who understands their heart now is not what it will be one day, that the sin and selfishness and evil still lurk in us deep inside, not condemning us, but still battling within us. And the pure of heart don't even trust their own purity of heart as their righteousness, but that all their impurities and sins of heart, past, present, and future, have been fully and finally paid for on the cross by Jesus. And when it says, for they shall see God, I think, I think that is, again, in this kingdom world, a statement for both today and one day. Seeing God today in the work and presence and evidence of God all around us, that pure of heart have those new lenses that Jesus is giving us to see the world in a way that we couldn't with our old, sinful, dead hearts to God. We now see God in his creation. We see God in his body, the church, moving through us. We see God's hand of providence and sovereignty in the circumstances of our lives, and we see God more and more fully as we look to Jesus in his word and in his living in and through us. But I think the pure of heart will also see God in another way on that day. 
when King Jesus returns and puts our enemy sin and death finally away forever and with the curse of sin undone, Jesus will unveil a new creation, new heaven, new earth, and all its sinless, perfect, in, in all its sinless, perfect glory. And in that new earth and new glorious city, this is our hope. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, in this city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus continues by saying, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So time prevents us from being able to unpack this as deeply as we should. But in this flipping everything upside down that Jesus does, he says, blessed are the peacemakers, and that peacemaker, that word for peacemaker, could actually be translated reconciler. Blessed are the reconcilers. So simply put, we live in a world that's fueled by division and dividers. Fear-mongering, stoking why we should hate our neighbors and enemies, and reinforcing our own self-righteousness by how right we are. To be a peacemaker in that is an act of cultural revolution. So what does Jesus mean by peacemaker? I, I think there are at least three places that those who, of us who belong to that reordered kingdom of God are called to be as peacemakers. The first is our calling to help the world make peace to reconcile with God himself. That's the charge that the Apostle Paul tells us, his church, that we have. It is our mandate as peacemakers. We see here, he says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, the message, the only hope of the world. He has entrusted us, the peacemakers, to bring that peace, that message, to a world that is lost and warring, that they might have peace with God through Jesus. We're also called to seek peace with one another, our brothers and sisters here in Christ. Paul will tell us, so then, let us pursue, pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So then as peacemakers, we also, thirdly, seek to show love and care for the world by bringing peace, when possible, to all of those we engage with. If possible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably 
with all. So again, much like mercy that we talked about, much like purity of heart, peacemaking is an outflow of who we are in the kingdom of God because of how we got into the kingdom of God in the first place. All of us before Jesus were at war with God as his enemies, hostile, hating, and actively fighting against him in how we tried to live our lives without him. Being our own God, being our own kings and queens, and taking the glory that he alone deserves and trying to claim it for ourselves. And it is only through the merciful love and grace of our one true king that our peace with God was made. Remember the word in Ephesians that says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace. So again, why do we live as peacemakers? Well, Jesus tells us here in this beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Notice it doesn't say they shall become sons of God by their peacemaking, but they will be called sons of God by their peacemaking. We are peacekeepers because we have already received the peace of God through Jesus. We are peacekeepers. Because our Father is the God of peace, and he's called us into the family business. And it's the business of the blessed. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those, Jesus continues, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So if we, if we hit pause for a second, we kind of take a step back. If we look at the Beatitudes as a whole, they're kind of like this cascading waterfall of what it means to be blessed. And the spring of which that waterfall starts is that beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's where it starts. And then it flows down through this reordered life of God's kingdom of, of mourning over sin and being comforted by God and hunger for righteousness and the satisfaction God brings and the mercy that flows out and purity that flows out and peace that flows out. But then this, this is the pool that that cascading waterfall leads into. It's where this kind of living ends up. And in some ways, this would be the hardest to feel blessed by. Blessed are the persecuted. Now, really quick, let's be clear. we got to say this per persecution, as we see, is for righteousness sake, not self-righteousness sake. This isn't a persecution that comes from you being a Christian jerk or a Christian annoying person. This isn't a self-glorifying martyr who's trying to prove their worth through how many people they can get to annoy or get mad at them. This isn't a persecution 
to define yourselves. This is a persecution from standing out, shining as the light of Christ in the world of darkness. It's a persecution, as Jesus says, on his account or in his name, not a persecution in our own name. And we'll spend more time in this series a little later talking about persecution. But in whatever form it genuinely takes, from the loss of a life to the loss of a job to being thrown into prison to being mocked or insulted, whatever it takes, whatever this persecution, when we see it, how on earth, how on earth are we to consider that blessed? Well, I'll argue there's, there's at least a couple ways. And I would say it's all about perspective and proximity. So let me explain. If we go back to even just these words, if you look at the Beatitudes, do you realize the Beatitudes, there's only one place where Jesus gives a command. Everything else is just talking about the reality of the world as it is. But there's one command. And it's when this persecution happens, he says, rejoice and be glad. But why? For your reward in heaven is great. Friends, Jesus is pulling down those spiritual lenses in front of us to help us see things clearly. This life that you and I have is fragile and fleeting. It could end tomorrow, or we could live until we're 100, but either way, it's vapor. But this short life is not the only chapter of the book of who we are. It's actually just a paragraph on a page of a novel that never ends. The short 60, 70, 80 years we might experience in this life is folded into an eternal story infinitely beyond the short breath of our existence here in this life. So what I mean and what I think Jesus means is this. It's the same heart, the Apostle Paul, when he said, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Jesus is saying you are blessed because while the pain is real, it will not last. While the suffering is intense, it will not last. What will last is a reward, a glory a depth of beauty that this suffering is working that is radiant and shimmering and is undimmed and unfading forever. When the pain of persecution happens, beloved, hold on to that new kingdom, that reordered perspective, that eternal reward is coming and hold on to the blessing. But it's not just a perspective where the blessing is found, I think, but also a proximity. Do you remember the story of Paul's conversion, when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, saw the great persecutor of the church, killing and imprisoning Christians. Here's what it says about him when Jesus appeared to him. It says, now he, as he, Paul, went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Did you catch that? Not, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting my friends? 
No, why are you persecuting me? Beloved, if we know Jesus, if we have been saved by placing our faith and trust in him, we are in him and he is in us. He is in us so closely that when we face the persecutions of living the kingdom life in this world for the glory of Jesus, he's not watching us from afar on a distant throne, but he is with us, with us in the suffering. The proximity of Jesus, the nearness of our King, is the greatest blessing anyone could ever know. It's our eternal hope, being with Jesus in the fullness of joy. And it's ours now, even and especially in persecution for his name. Perspective and proximity, the blessings of suffering for the glory of our Savior and King Jesus. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. To wrap things up, we've noted that the Beatitudes here kind of kick off this Sermon on the Mount that's telling us we need these new spiritual lenses with, with which to see the world. That without them, we see all of life, including blessing backwards and upside down. And it calls us to believe the gospel of grace that we cannot live up to the Beatitudes and their call on our own efforts. We cannot be good enough. We cannot save ourselves. But we need the grace given to us. And the truth that our sinless Savior, in mercy, took the justice of the cross our sin demanded. And in grace, gives us the reward of his perfect righteousness. And then, it calls us to live the gospel of grace. That those of us made new by faith, born again into his kingdom... Our lives are meant to be different. So I want to ask you, what if in this hurting and confused world out there that is longing for blessedness that they were made for, what if this world saw a church not seeking blessing in the ways that everyone else is from striving for happiness and the fleeting and false promises of power or acceptance, comfort, money, achievement. But what if they saw a people living for another kingdom, another reality, a deeper blessing, a people whose lives were transformed, were reordered in a way that makes no sense apart from the reality of a resurrected Savior. A church full of the poor in spirit, broken over sin, in humble service, marked by grace, who live in a culture of mercy, with a sincere purity of heart to God, as agents of peace, with a joy that even suffering can't steal. What would we call a church of people like that? Blessed. And the crown jewel of that blessing, the very king himself, Jesus. So I'll conclude with a quote uh, from a commentator named Daniel Aiken because I can't say it any better than he does. He writes, Why are the Beatitudes such a beloved portion of the Bible for a Christian? I think I have an idea. We love them because they give us a portrait of Jesus and who we are becoming in him. No one sympathized with spiritual beggars more than Jesus. No one grieved over sin and a broken world more than Jesus. No one was more meek in submitting to God's will than Jesus. 
No one hungered and thirsted for righteousness more than Jesus. No one showed mercy to others more than Jesus. No one sought peace between God and man, between man and man, more than Jesus. No one suffered unjust persecution and evil against themselves more than Jesus. I look at the Beatitudes and I see Jesus. I look at the Beatitudes and I see who I'm becoming, or I would add, who we are becoming in him. Blessed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give us your eyes to see the world as it is. Give us the faith to trust you to live a reordered, transformed life in that reality. Set our hearts on eternity and the glory of your name. And Lord, help us to believe and trust the costly grace of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection that gives us the power to do it. Lord, we praise you and we thank you. And it's in your holy name we pray.